Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we have another great interview in store for you all. I chat with Yolanda Hagar and Claire Patterson from Somalogic, a biotech company based in Colorado that is working on proteomics and personalized medicine. We have a great conversation about their career paths from academia to industry and compare some of their experiences in both of those worlds. I think you'll learn a lot from their experience on this episode. Before we jump in, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. And if you've been enjoying our content, um, make sure to click subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have a Patreon set up if you're interested in supporting the show. Um, we really appreciate your support and thank you so much for listening to Lady Scientist Podcast. Today we are joined by not one but two amazing lady scientists who are working in the biotech industry at a company called Somalogic. We'll be diving into their career paths and their current work and learning about precision medicine and proteomics. Claire and Yolanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. This yeah, is great. great to be here. So Claire, let's start out with, with yourself. How did you first become interested in a career in science? Yeah, I think um, science was always a subject I excelled at in school. Um, probably one of the only subjects I excelled in at school was biology. And um, yeah, it was just a natural progression uh, for me to uh, pursue um, an education in science and uh, was fortunate to uh, do a fantastic degree in immunology and pharmacology at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow in the UK um, and a natural progression to doing a PhD there also um, to really foster that love of science um, and to take that forward into a career path. And Yolanda, what about yourself? How did you first become interested in science? Yeah, I just always really loved math, which I got teased about endlessly <laughs> as, in, as a middle schooler loving math, but I just really always um, thought it was such a cool subject and sort of fitting puzzles together. And so I just kind of pursued that and in, um, I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in math and then I kind of didn't know what I was going to do with that. So I sort of um, spent a couple years just thinking about what would really be an interesting way to apply math. And I ended up really getting into um, how math can be used to predict biological processes and the world. And so that's sort of how I got into this particular vein of science. And so from your bachelor's, you went on to get your PhD. Can you tell us what your PhD was in and what particular area you were studying? Yeah, um, my PhD is in biostatistics. And so biostatistics is really just statistics, but it really focuses on um, methods that are specific to analyzing biological data. And specifically for me, my focus has been throughout my sort of uh, upper graduate career has been about trying to model 
things that might happen in the future and using data that sort of lets us track people over time and how do you anticipate what might come up later on in, in life for those people. So that's really what I specialized early on and I've still continued that and I still do that today, really. And so from your PhD, you went on to do a postdoc. Can you tell us what your postdoc search was like and was it, you know, divergent from what you were working on in your PhD or relatively similar? Yeah, um, yeah, my situation, um, so I did, I did do a postdoc and I did it in the applied math department at CU Boulder. Um, and it sort of is one of those things that just kind of worked out. I was in a really complicated um, situation where my husband also was in academia. And so we had this two body thing <laughs> that sort of has followed us around in many ways. Um, and so at that time, we both were looking for postdocs in the same place. And he found one in Boulder, Colorado, and I emailed a few people and one woman, it just really worked out well. And so she took me on and it ended up being a fantastic, you know, mentorship experience. Um, and so that's kind of how that piece worked out for me. It was sort of feels like it was luck, but it was also a lot of emails and a lot of tra tracking people down and trying to find people who might have funding and want to mentor me in the ways I was hoping to grow. For those who are less familiar with some of the challenges of a career in academia, the two body problem is yes. often what's what a term used to refer to when you have a partner who's also in, in an academic field or a field where, you know, your job and your, your work is incredibly centralized or has to take you to particular places in the United States, for instance. And so your job hunt, um, when you have two people involved that are trying to live in the same place can, can be even more constrained. So that's what Yolanda is referring to. And it's a common a challenge in this industry. So yes, yes. So getting back to Claire, what did you do your PhD in? Yeah, I actually pursued my PhD in neuroscience um, at the University of Glasgow. Um, and I actually remember exactly the point at which I knew that was the subject I wanted to pursue for my PhD. In, the final years of my undergraduate degree, we had lectures on psychiatry and mental illness. And, you know, 16 years ago, that was a very taboo topic. And my knowledge of, you know, any personality trait at that point was the perception of split personality disorder. And just learning through that series of lectures, how complex and misunderstood that whole area is still, um, that was just something that I was really passionate about pursuing. And so um, I was very fortunate in being able to find a PhD in neuroscience um, at the University of Glasgow, um, where I was studying um, biomarker discovery for psychiatric illness, in particular schizophrenia, um, which mainly was developing translational rodent models for um, really identifying how uh, manipulating genetics could potentially be a therapeutic intervention for schizophrenia in particular. Um, the really fantastic thing about my PhD was it was an industry collaborative PhD, so it was actually with GlaxoSmithKline, 
And it gave me a first insight into how that crossover between academia and industry could work um, and how you know, the lens of scientific research um, differs, but is very complementary between those um, two paths in research. So, um, so yeah, that was my PhD experience and it's quite different than the PhD experience here in the US, but um, I, I'm glad that I pursued it and um, it's developed into a great career. That's so neat that you were able to have an industry collaboration during your PhD, yeah. working with one of the top you know, pharma companies, um, GSK, and I'm curious, um, from a biomarker perspective, were there any key findings you can highlight for us in, in what you were able to understand about schizophrenia from your research? Yeah, so we um, were focusing on actually trying to identify how genetic risk factors uh, that had been identified in clinical trials, how those can be translated through translational animal models into therapeutics. Um, you know, that's a long process, um, but it's completely doable. And I think that that fostered even what we're doing here today, the use of omics technology to be at the forefront of medicine. And that's something that I feel very passionate about and I've pursued at all stages of my career so far. And yeah, it was just a a great opportunity to um, be able to work work with industry um, and also experience some of those um, aspects of industry that are quite different uh, from, from academia as well. Were you able to compare your experience having this industry collaboration to some of your peers that didn't have something like that? Was there a difference in, in mindset or, or how the research was carried out? I think that there was a couple of differences. So um, one difference is, and uh, is often with industry, um, you know, financial restraints are somewhat less uh, when industry is involved. So that was a fantastic part that there was funding uh, from the industry collaborator to, uh, you know, be able to put into the research. Um, but also, I think it really gave me that, insight and especially a lot of people who do PhDs in basic biology or basic omics research because that process is so long from biomarker discovery to getting through a, a, a clinical trial for a therapeutic people who study at the beginning don't really get a chance to think about the end product and um, I think that that was a great opportunity for me to be able to interact with those people who had been through that entire process um, and I think really set me in the mindset for my entire career that I did want to be involved from the beginning all the way through to the very end as well. So I think those are some of the things that was an advantage of that early experience. Really interesting. I, I worked in systems biology with a neuroscience focus during my PhD and studied some of the um, regulatory markers related to schizophrenia and other psychiatric illnesses and um, can definitely appreciate the, the lengthy process of taking <laughs> basic research findings and trying to find something actionable from them. And Absolutely. I'm certainly driven by the type of research that uh, can have a real impact in the clinic and, and for patients. But um, it's, it's neat to hear that you were able to have that 
that direct connection during your PhD. Yeah. So you went on then to, to do a postdoc at the NIH, is that correct? NIMH? That's right. Yep. Can you tell us uh, what, what that looked like for you, the decision process of going there and, and what your postdoc was focused on? Yeah. Um, so again, that was a fortuitous uh, situation, really. Um, I don't think I'd really thought about moving to America at that point, um, being in Scotland and have only traveled to America once prior to, to really moving here. Um, I was at a conference in Italy and, um, you know, a very influential person at National Institute of Mental Health happened by a poster at a conference and said, will you come give a presentation? And offered me to come out and gave a talk. And a few months later, I moved out there to, to do my postdoc there. So it was um, not really something that I had uh, planned. Um, and I think something that a lot of people struggle with trying to put themselves out there at the end of their PhD to, you know, um, self-promote and to get yourself into those positions that you might not think that you're good enough for, you know, the NIH is an institution in itself and to be given that opportunity to move to another continent and work in that environment um, was not something that I expected. And so, um, you know, looking back on it now, I don't know how I managed it, but I really try and um, enforce that on people that I mentor that you can do anything you want, just put yourself forward for that and take opportunities that you can get also. Um, it, working at the NIH was a fantastic opportunity, you know, moving to a completely different continent, taking on that um, experience in itself, um, you know, it really was an eye-opening, uh, you know, transition in my life to just see what research in a different country looks like. Um, and especially at the NIH where there's so much opportunity breadth of research, um, you know, from primate research all the way through to clinical trials. And that was just fantastic for me to be able to see what was possible um, and being able to work at the forefront of research and to be in a group that had access to the biggest set of um, postmortem brain samples in the world. And that was really eye-opening for me, moving from a more basic biology translational models into now working with human tissue and clinical data was a really great transition for me and setting me on the path for what I wanted to do more in my career as well. So it was fantastic. And um, I loved, I loved living in Washington DC as well. That was great. Awesome. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting point to highlight that, um, for, for those of us in the research field, sometimes there's uh, particular advantages to working in certain areas or with certain groups, and especially in this era of uh, data science where you might have access to this postmortem brain data site that you mentioned. Um, that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, have, have been excited by um, to, to be able to interact with certain data sets and advance the research from that. So Yolanda, I want to shift back to you and um, talk about your, your postdoc to industry transition, um, your job search, you know, what you were kind of looking for in a role and um, what that shift was like from, from postdoc to industry. 
Yeah, um, I it was a I mean it was a wild ride for sure. Um, you know, I I was in this postdoc for five years, and and this is where the two body thing with me and my husband came into play again. And and he's actually in physics, which is which is much harder to hire in essentially. Um, so we we actually did two years of job hunt, <laughs> and. Um, in the end, the, the Venn diagram of having a place where we didn't have to each commute an hour each way and where it was somewhere we actually wanted to live and also felt fulfilled by our jobs. That, that actually was a pretty small space. Um, so we, we ended up staying in Boulder. Uh, we both found jobs here. I didn't actually, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't actually quite clear on how industry would work or if I would actually enjoy it that much or um, what that life would really be like. And, and I do wish I had known more because it's actually turned out to be a really great fit and a fantastic um, experience, but I, I didn't know. It felt like a bit of a gamble. <laughs> um, and, and I ended up choosing SomaLogic because, well, there were a lot of reasons, but it sort of met all these external needs I had. And then I also felt that um, the people I had spoken to were really interesting and, and really liked their jobs. And I kind of didn't really realize that an industry job could be like that. So um, I wouldn't say that I understood every step of the way what was gonna happen next or had a grand plan. Um, but it has ended up working out really well. So maybe some of that's a little bit what you make of <laughs> what you're working with. So, yeah. Yeah, and looking back, can you recall any of those fears you had about entering into industry or the unknowns and yeah, what you kind yeah. of wish you would have known? Absolutely, oh yeah. I think, I think there's the first kind of um, baseline fear of, am I just gonna come in and be like, doing rote work every day where I'm just like typing the same four letters on my keyboard and you know out pops a result in here and now I'm like getting my paycheck and going home and and I think that's that was one sort of worry and then I think the other piece was really feeling like um in academia I think there's a lot of idea of collaborating and having a team to work with and I didn't really think I could have that in the same way. Um, and, and, you know, now having this job, it's anything but rote. There's <laughs> like, no, really no boredom at all. Um, and, and also um, just all the collaborating we get to do just even internally within the company is really fantastic. And I think I just, you know, it could probably benefit um, to have more industry involvement in some of these academic paths that people are on so that people can kind of know what's possible. Um, I, I just really didn't realize it could be just as fulfilling on those axes at all. Yeah, so, so to jump into what your day-to-day -day looks like a little bit, you're the Associate Director of Bioinformatics, is that correct? Yes, yes. And I imagine bioinformatics at a company like Somalogic, where you're generating a lot of data and proteomics data, um, is very integrated, very essential. Absolutely. Can you, 
Can you talk about um, what that looks like and, and how you work with other teams at the company? Totally, yeah. So the bioinformatics group is, um, it's big. It's probably about 10% of the company and, it, and it's growing even, even bigger. And so, um, and a lot of that is because the team plays so many critical roles with a variety of different touch points throughout the company. So I would say the main functions are really like processing and QCing the data, delivering it to customers, analyzing the data and helping sort of improve the assay technology. Um, my team has um, a really sort of, everyone kind of thinks of it as having the specific function of taking these um, protein measurements and then, and then uh, predicting health outcomes for um, patients. And, and those could be either current states or future states. Um, and so there's a lot of machine learning and data analysis. It's like kind of a, a data scientist type job where they're doing a lot of, of those kind, using a lot of those kind of techniques. And then there's a bunch of supporting functions like um, understanding if the models we're making are sensitive to dietary interventions or we have a whole series of what we call pipeline tools, which basically allow us to process this data um, in an efficient way and sort of draw conclusions and produce reports in a, in a, really, nice, in a really nice way. And um, so my day-to-day -day activities really involve making sure that these groups are um, understanding what each other's doing, um, and then, I, and then I mostly do a lot of communicating. Most of my job right now is communicating, which involves um, people, uh, both my employees and these teams that that I work with, but also uh, lots of sideways communicating. So, for example, Claire and I work together all the time. We're, we see each other every day <laughs> on Teams meetings. Uh, hello again is is our normal greeting, and um, you know, just to kind of collaborate on these different things that we're doing. And then, and then we also um, work a lot with um, regulatory teams and the legal teams and the assay teams. And that involves a lot of communicating on a, on a much higher level. What do we need? This is what we got to do. We got to get from point A to B. And, and so I do a lot of sort of distilling technical information into more digestible parts depending on the group of people that we're talking to. So I'd say my day, my day to day is a lot of communication. I also try and provide um, these sort of technical skills to my employees so they can complete all these different functions and understand what they're doing. And um, my day to day has changed a lot in the last few years. <laughs> so um, there are a lot of people whose day to day is much more about getting into the science and digging in and and that just is their preference on how to work regularly. It sounds really diverse and, and fun. And I, I like that you emphasize how much communication is a big part of that role, because I yes. think um, that can sometimes be uh, underappreciated for those who are still starting out in their careers and learning um, bioinformatics and statistics. And um, I'm curious, where where you picked up those skills along the way? Do you feel like a lot of it was um, learning learning on the job, or 
did you have um, particular needs for, for good communication early on? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, probably a bit of it is self-selecting. So I think um, biostatistics and, and then kind of parts of bioinformatics by nature require communicating to, to be successful. And so when I was in grad school, um, I, I worked almost exclusively with researchers at the UC Davis Medical Center doing all kinds of different projects. And that's a situation where you really cannot um, be in your own bubble and make good conclusions. And so, you know, there's, and that's really both sides. Like if I just get a data set and I want to you know, write a paper about some disease and what I have found that's interesting about that disease, I really do need someone who knows the clinical side of things to guide and lead the decisions on how that data should be used and what's done in the field. And it, it would sort of be naive of me to think that like, just because I know how to analyze data, I can do it correctly. Um, so, and you know, of course, if you're a clinician, you might not even have the skill set to analyze the data. So that's sort of where that partnership naturally is, is necessary. And so probably if I had not enjoyed those things or felt that I was particularly terrible, um, I probably would not have continued down that um, career path. I, I did also have a, my grad school advisor was really great at communicating um, con complicated statistical concepts to um, clinical teams. And so I think I also learned so much from her on, on how to do that effectively and you know, even simple mantras she would repeat, like put this in a graph, <laughs> you know, don't make this a table, put it in a graph or these kind of things that now are maybe more second nature. She really um, knew how to do that. And so it was probably the right combination of mentoring and and just being interested in it and wanting to be good at that and, and finding it fascinating to try and um, communicate complicated things in a way that would be meaningful to someone who's interested in the biology of what's going on. I love that. That sounds like great, great mentoring and great advice. Um, so I want to shift back over to Claire and Claire's path. Um, through academia and, and then joining industry. So Claire, you went on from your postdoc to um, accepting a, a professorship at, at the University of Colorado and you were there for seven years. Can you tell us what, what led you to, you know, continuing on with a career in academia and what your experience was like as a professor? Yeah. Um... I was offered a position out here at Colorado, um, initially just a, a short-term position, originally anticipated six months to one year, and that was um, 10 years ago now. So I definitely fell in love with uh, Colorado and, and stay here and uh, build my family here. Um, but yeah, I had a great opportunity to, to move here to Colorado um, at the university and set up a lab and to continue um, to continue the research I'd been doing in my postdoc, um, but transitioning a little bit more from looking at um, 
you know, solely just the impact of genetic risk factors, but to start thinking about how to use omics to really look at how gene expression and protein expression changes across the lifespan, um, but also how much variation there is from person to person and population to population. And um, I think that those were great opportunities for me to, you know, to develop, um, you know, research ideas, a, a lot of experience in uh, grant writing. Um, I think that the biggest thing I loved about my academic career was my ability to mentor people. Um, and I had fantastic opportunities to, you know, develop um, educational um, projects, bringing in um, students from community colleges and underserved areas here in Colorado, all the way through to mentoring PhD students. And that was something that I really loved um, helping, you know, develop and foster a love for research um, that I think both Yolanda and I still are so passionate about in our day-to-day -day jobs, even at Somalogic and industry, building our team and, you know, fostering, developing people's career. Um, I think from the research perspective, as I said, my research at the university really gave me an appreciation for that thought of precision medicine. So how can we use omics technology to thinking about how each of us should should be um, accessible to personalized medicine um, as a better standard of care. So that was um, kind of the highlights of um, my academic career. And I think I had a, a very successful academic career, um, you know, continuing in um, psychiatry research, transitioning more into population and clinical studies. Um, but yeah, I decided to make the shift into industry and it was a, hard, a really hard decision to make, to be honest, um, having been uh, in academia for such a long time. And I think, you know, the, the biggest things of that switch is I'm going to lose everything that I've done and worked so hard on. And you feel like you own those things, right? So I had my special genes that I loved and I'd researched for a really long time. And I still have PubMed updates to let me know all the research that comes out because I still love that. And I want to know still what's going on. But I think that, um, you know, there's this perception of moving from academia into industry that you lose control over what you can do. There's a perception that you just get told what you do. You don't have your own research. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a it's a nine to five desk job. And uh, it's, it's really not like that at all. And, um, you know, this perception of people who move from industry, from academia into industry, whether they're scientists or physician scientists, you know, this stigma of being a failed um, academic or a failed physician scientist. And I, think I was really worried about that and really worried about the chance to not help people in their career development process either and um, I made that jump and I think I made the right decision because I think a lot of those perceptions are really false um, and I feel my academic career was fantastic and it set me up with all the skills that I've needed for that transition uh, into industry 
Um, and there's, you know, there's no right or wrong path, but there are different paths. And I think it's really important, especially in the growing PhD market for PhD students to know you don't have to do a postdoc in an academic career to be successful. And it's not a failure if you decide one path over the other. Um, and so that was a really big decision um, for me, uh, for sure, to move into industry. Were you recruited away from the university or what was your kind of process like yeah. entering industry? Yeah, I think that um, I really wanted um, a different kind of challenge. Um, for sure, um, academia is very challenging in many different ways. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the biggest thing for me was I wanted to see more of that research I was doing fall into patients' hands. And I think it goes back to that comment we were making earlier about that length of time, right, from biomarker discovery all the way through. And I um, had known a few groups at the university who'd used the SomaScan platform for their research. So I was aware of the company um, and, and what their mission was and how fantastic their platform was of being able to, you know, take thousands of proteins from a blood sample and be able to deliver health and wellness information straight to a patient. And I just wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be one step closer to being able to be part of a research that actually impacted how physicians treat their patients and how patients uh, receive standard of care and live their lives. So that was the biggest um, reason for me really uh, to move over. That's really neat that the something this company had already developed, the science itself was part of your draw to joining. Yeah. I think that's that's really exciting. So that's a good segue. I think if you could highlight what SomaScan is and anything else in the portfolio at SomaLogic that um, you're either working on or, you know, is already public information that you can share with our listeners to help them understand uh, the mission of this company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that we are, we're a really unique company in that we do have an amazing technology. We have an amazing platform um, already developed. Um, we can assess from one small blood sample over 7,000 proteins uh, from, from, one, from one assay, and that's growing. Um, so uh, in the uh, next year to two years, we'll be at 10,000 proteins from you know, 50 microliters um, of a blood sample, which I, I just think is amazing that um, technology can do that. Um, we measure um, proteins, and we think that proteins are really at the forefront of um, you know, delivery of biological information. Um, we know how important genetics are, that they're the blueprint of life, but that proteins really are the readout of what those genes do. Proteins are also you know, drug targets. They also change across life and after intervention, whether that be therapeutic or lifestyle. And so what we're enabled to by looking at those thousands of proteins from an individual blood sample is to give a very accurate readout of current state or future state health and wellness traits. And so, as I said, we have this platform that can measure over 7,000 um, 
protein. So we cover so many biological processes. It's not just immunology. It's not just oncology related. We really span the gamut of so many different biological processes. And I think that's really important from a discovery aspect that that's the thing about science is, you know, everything's novel. You may be looking at cardiovascular disease, but hey, look, the strongest biomarkers are, are novel. They're not really what you anticipated to be part of cardiac function, for example. So um, we have a fantastic technology that we put into the hands of, uh, you know, academic groups, um, pharma companies, um, government institutions, but we also have this healthcare side of our company uh, that Yolanda and I are part of where we take that proteomic data, matching it with clinical data, and then uh, through um, you know, clinical decisions with uh, amazing math people, which I'm definitely not one of, uh, <laughs> to put that together and to develop you know, these uh, novel um, uh, products where we have uh, proteins that can tell us about what's happening in our bodies right now, whether that's, like I said, current state uh, or future state predictions. And so we have right now, I think, 20 uh, proteomic-based tests uh, in the market, our soma signal tests, and um, that's expanding. And so uh, this year, I think two notable areas um, that we are developing. We recently announced that we um, are collaborating uh, with uh, several different uh, academic groups to bring in the EPIC study, which is a, a very, very large uh, cancer study from Europe that will enable us uh, over the next year to develop um, oncology susceptibility tests, which I think is just such an amazing thing to think about. If you could know in the next five, 10, 15 years that you're at risk of developing a cancer, how transformative that is for healthcare and for your own personal life, not only for understanding biology more, but also making you more compliant with screening, helping with preventative cancer trials. Um, so that's something that I'm really um, looking forward to, to getting, uh, digging into that. We're also bringing in a large study called MESA, multi-ethnic uh, study and uh, what's really interesting about that is it's cardiovascular based but as the title may um, you know give away the punchline that it is a multi-ethnic study so it can really allow us and we should be doing this thinking about how omics uh, you know is diverse over ethnicities and that's something that as we talk about personalized medicine is really important for us to think about. Um, and then over the last two years, we've also been uh, doing a lot of work on COVID, um, which is one of the great things about industry as well is how quick to pivot that you can be um, in academia sometimes could be a bit longer and uh, funding reliant. Um, you know, we've assayed over, I think, over 20,000 COVID samples um, since the beginning of the pandemic. There's over 30 publications out there using SomaScan technology for COVID. Uh, and we've actually shown that our tests we developed in um, non-COVID settings actually apply in the context of COVID as well. So um, a lot of different areas. So I uh, really given the opportunity to look across so many disease processes. And that's, you know, just from a single sample, uh, looking at all of these proteins simultaneously.
And we recently um, partnered with Illumina. And so we're developing our platform to have a next generation sequencing output also. So that's something really exciting over the next few years as we develop our um, technology more also. That's really exciting. It's neat to hear about all the progress and how integrated you are with both the, the academic sector and the industry sector and um, across these different kind of disease areas. So exciting work. Um, Yolanda, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this um, healthcare program that you're also involved in. Yeah, um, so the way in which um, I'll say since Claire is here, Claire and I work together is, is we really, um, a lot of our, our job involves thinking about data and how to use data to make meaningful um, tests that we can provide to customers and, or I should say patients, but the customer is also a clinician. So, um, you know, there's, there's a huge um, piece to that. There's not only the, the model building process, but then there's um, the communication between the two groups on um, who, who are we really making this test for? And, you know, there's, there's lots of really fancy things we could do with our data, but if there's a $10 equivalent test, then, then the justification for doing that is different than if there's something that doesn't exist at all, like predicting cancer in the next 10 years. So, so we've, we, we sort of have this um, ongoing collaboration where we're always thinking about how do we use the data to give patients and clinicians more information. And, and you can think of that as there's data, there's math, as Clara says, and then there's also a whole layer of how do you convey things to a clinician or a patient that are meaningful to them? So um, if you think about telling a patient, you know, your chance of this thing happening is 12%, well, they don't necessarily know, is that bad? Is that good? Like, what does that mean? Or as if you show a diagram of 10 bodies and highlight one of them and say like, you're one of these 10 bodies, then, then people sort of understand that information more. And so there's, we work really closely with a bunch of other teams to um, really get from that data and idea to the patient or clinician. And that's, that's a, a complicated process that involves a lot of people. Awesome. I have another question for you, Yolanda. So I'm curious, there have been you know, a few announcements recently. Um, companies, I feel like pop up every day that are utilizing machine learning to yeah. uh, pursue drug discovery, for instance. Can you share your perspective of the field as a whole and maybe how somalogic fits into that. And if there, if in your eyes, there has been, um, you know, real progress that, that results in, in cures for patients, for instance. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think, um, we talk about this a lot within my team. It's, it, you know, whenever you have a buzzword like machine learning or AI or these things, there's always sort of this myth versus reality situation, I think, that, that comes up. And I think there's um, 
certainly some, some legitimate concerns as many, many people sort of enter this healthcare space using AI, if I put that in quotes. Um, and, and some of that is, is really interesting. And some of it is, does, does feel like a bit of a black box, I think, to patients. And, and so if you can contrast a doctor saying to you, your measurement is 50 and we know that you know better than more than 25 is good and less than 25 is bad i think a patient can feel really comfortable hearing those results but if if you're if you're told look we put your put your information through an algorithm and your chance is 20% i think people feel like wait what how do i trust that i don't i don't know how you got from point a to point b and so I think this is sort of the general sort of push-pull of the field. And, and I think there is, there are obviously people who are more qualified to be sort of making clinical decisions. And, you know, it kind of goes back to this idea of, do you have the clinical people working with the data scientists, working with the, you know, marketing team, or do you have a an algorithm that you're plugging in health data into, those two things are very different. And so I think there's some differentiation that needs um, to be done for sure. Um, you know, the main goal of machine learning and AI techniques is to take just a ton of information and distill it down into something meaningful. And I think as we progress through healthcare and think about really trying to have personalized medicine become a really powerful tool that we really can use to make better decisions. We're gonna have to integrate more technology. And I think that the idea that that technology would only be biological measurements is probably not the complete story. You will, we will have to integrate more of this computational process. And, and that's probably more about just having more people who understand what that means. So for example, if my team is taking 7,000 proteins and trying to predict who's gonna get um, lung cancer in the next 10 years, we can actually trace a lot of the results. So, so we sort of go through this process of which proteins do we really think are the most meaningful? Which ones predict this endpoint the best? Which ones are really able to tell us the most about who's going to get cancer in 10 years? And, and we can actually take a lot of those um, proteins and trace how are they related to each other? Are there just already known diseases they're associated with. Um, for the ones that we don't know, what can we say about them? And um, is, did we find something new? Is this something that we don't understand yet? Um, how important is it to this particular disease? And then, and then we can also go into a whole world of like, well, what if there are drugs to like mediate these certain things, which is a lot of the COVID research that Claire and I have been working on is, hey, we found all these proteins that are associated with, you know, acute COVID. Are there 
drugs that we know will make the situation better or worse, uh, you know? So it's not really a black box. It's very actually understandable. It's just very technical. And so I think there's some level of, um, we may have to start uh, being willing to, to have this technical skill be part of our sort of regulatory process and, um, you know, discussion and just the general conversation is like, this isn't a black box. We can actually understand this, but it is more complicated than what we have been doing. And that's okay because um, we are going to improve healthcare by providing more personalized data for you. I think as well, if it's, if it's okay for me to add, Jocelyn, yeah. um, that, you know, I, th I think a lot of it is about patient education as well. And, you know, there are very, very few examples of a measurement of one thing that's a diagnostic or a prognostic. <laughs> you know, you, you think about actually, you know, current standards for determining your risk for cardiovascular disease. It's not one biomarker, it's not one blood test, it's multiple demographic factors, it's multiple health histories um, that go together into risk calculator calculations as it stands. So you go to your doctor's office, they're already doing these kind of calculations to populate those existing risk factors into an algorithm. We're just generating a more sophisticated one that's based upon proteomics that captures a lot yeah. better biology and doesn't rely upon those self-reports, but are also not factors that don't change. So a lot of your health history, your genetics, is not going to change over your lifespan. Your proteins do. And so I think that, you know, machine learning and AI is um, the next step. Uh, I just think it's patients understanding we're already doing these complicated things as part of standard of care. We're just improving it by using biology now to do that instead of, you know, self-reported questionnaires. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you both highlighted, you know, some of the complexity behind these terms and, and how integrated you really have to be within a company like Somalogic and, and working together across clinical and, and regulatory and, and bioinformatics and all of these different areas. And also that, and I think this is something people forget that bioinformatics starts with bio, you know, yeah. and, and there's a, there's a level of like biological under, understanding that you need to have on your team to be able to parse what's coming out of these analyses and, and interpret it for, um, something that will have, uh, a clinical impact. Um, Absolutely. So, um, sorry, I'm just going to check the time really quick. Great. So I think we can head into a, a few last questions. Um, I'm curious, I know both of you have, have had experience in academia and in different labs and running your own lab and, and now working at SomaLogic, but can you Talk to us about what the culture is like at Somalogic. Yeah, um, I, the thing I think that is really cool is that um, Somalogic has this sort of innate 
mix of academic and business um, orientation and goals. And um, neither side is ignored. Every, both sides sort of have this voice that is meaningful. Um, and, and I just find that to be really cool because you, there's actually business decisions being driven by real scientific findings, results, what we know right now, what we think is true and, and sort of if there's something we need to explore to make the product better, there is you know, funding that goes towards or money that goes towards that. Um, and so I think that's just a really unique and cool way to operate and sort of, um, I think it gives the, I think it gives everyone confidence that the, the products that we are selling are real and not just something that is generic with a fancy label on it. And so, you know, when I talk to my friends or colleagues, I can actually genuinely feel excited about what we're doing because I know it's real because I'm doing a lot of the <laughs> under the hood stuff. And so um, I think that's, that's a really, really unique aspect to it. And I think it also leaves nobody bored. I don't think there's anyone who's ever bored or just feeling like they're coming in to punch a time clock. I think everyone is incredibly engaged and um, yeah, just into it, really into it. Yeah, I think everyone's really passionate about what we're doing. And I think that, you know, the leadership in the company as a whole sees that and fosters that, um, you know, creating a work environment to, to make people love what they do. And, you know, it's not just a dollar sign at the end of the day that, you know, at all levels of the company, we all truly believe that what we are doing and the platform we have and the mission we have is going to improve healthcare. I think the other great thing about the culture of the company, and I think Yolanda would agree, is, um, you know, the, the female component of the leadership. Yes. Um, you know, we have, I think on International Women's Day, uh, I, I saw a post, we posted, we have over 50% women in the company, which is fantastic. Um, I think both Yolanda and I really encourage diversity of all kinds in our groups. Um, my team currently is all, all women within my team. So that's not a prerequisite to being on my team, but it's just how it's uh, currently turned out. But I think that the company acknowledges the importance of diversity and culture um, and see that there are areas for growth as well and that that growth isn't just a tick the box. It's one of the core goals um, of the, of the mm -hmm. company um, to have that culture and diversity as well, which I think is really refreshing. That's great to hear. Um, I'm also curious, any advice you both have for folks interested in the types of career paths that you've, you've pursued and, and the type of work that you've been doing? I think my advice, this probably is pretty general, but for any, anyone, but maybe particularly if you're a woman or in some other less represented group, I think having good mentors is just critical. And I just, I feel very fortunate that I 
I had two really great advisors that are so unique in different ways, but that um, both really cared about my own growth and my own development and my own, my success. And I think that's just, it's pretty, you're already kind of going against the grain in many ways. And you're already sort of um, trying to overcome different stereotypes or, or barriers you're, you're facing either, you know, implicit or just blatant. And, and I think just having that person on your side who's really, you know, not only promoting you, but teaching you how to navigate these things is just really critical. And so I don't even know if that's science specific. I do think in science there is, um, there's some more barriers maybe than other fields, but I just think like any woman in who is a, has a vision for her future, that's I, I don't know how you do it without it, to be honest, it would be much more difficult. So, you know, seeking out those people that you feel that you can really um, talk to and express your concerns and your needs and who you feel will teach you about things you might not even know that you can advocate for or need, I just think is um, the number one thing. Love that. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think, um, you know, if you're not fortunate to be in that situation, I think, you know, being a self-advocate is one of the most important <laughs> things also in the scientific career. Um, you know, taking those gutsy steps and self-advocating for yourself, taking those risks, um, knowing that one career path is, you know, you, your own unique path that doesn't need to follow anyone else. Um, yeah, and um, I think, I think uh, you know, there there are many different options, and explore explore everything that you can. Claire, I'm curious. Do you think you'll be working in industry for for the long term, or do you do you ever think about going back to academia? I'm just <laughs> curious. <laughs> you know, I think I think I am in industry for the long term, and I'll, and I think um, you know. At Soma Logic, we recognize the importance of academic collaboration. And a lot of my time uh, and responsibilities are working with academic groups. And so I'm still immersed in that environment a lot of the time. And I can really see the importance of that. Um, and so, you know, I, I have the best of both worlds here. So um, I, don't, I don't see it as being a, a one or the other. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point that, you know, every company is different. The breakdown of the academic versus industry mindset might be very different. And I think a lot of it can have to do with um, collaborations. I worked at a company mm -hmm. where we had a lot of academic collaborations at a time when, um, you know, academics were relying on us to provide reagents that that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And so we were on calls regularly with these different groups and you really still got to feel that sense of um, participation in the academic process and the research and see the papers come out and, and that Absolutely. kind of thing. So I think it's great to highlight that for those um, who are kind of questioning um, their place in one or the other, there are 
companies Absolutely. that certainly bridge um, bridge those environments quite well. And ultimately, you know, the why we're doing what we're doing is the same between both, um, you know, academia and industry. We're all doing this for the same reason and we all have the same drive, just slightly different um, permutations of how you get to the end product. Absolutely. Yolanda, any other comments on that? <laughs> No, it's fine. <laughs> like, oh my God, we can cut that, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, well, I, I think that's a good good point for us to wrap up. So I just want to give you both an opportunity. Um, if you can let let our listeners know um, if you're you're available to be contacted, where they can find you. Um, we'll make sure to link uh, Soma Logic and and. Um, your websites as well, but but feel free to take a moment uh, to to have any shout outs. Absolutely, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to find me, Yolanda Hager. And I, there's no other Yolanda Hagers, so you'll that it's not a hard find. <laughs> um, and I'm happy to communicate there for anyone who's interested in learning more or wants to know more about the group or anything like that. Yeah. Um... Absolutely. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to learn more about proteomics, uh, academic industry transition. Um, I'm more than happy for people to reach out. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time today and sharing your experience with us and, and our listeners. And I learned a lot about your career paths and the work that you do at Soma Logic, and it made me even more excited for, for proteomics and personalized <laughs> medicine. <laughs> so um, really, again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. That wraps up my interview with Yolanda and Claire. Thank you both so much for taking the time to do this interview and share your experience with all of us. I learned so much from your paths through academia and industry, and it's exciting the work you're doing at Soma Logic. If you enjoyed this episode of Lady Scientist Podcast, please make sure to click subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.